0: Please remain standing for the reading of God's word from Esther chapter 5, Esther chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request." Let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow I am also invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. It's God's word for his people today. Let's thank God for it and be seated and ask once again for God to give us his help. So, Father, we know that we cannot understand these things without your Spirit's grace and provision of wisdom and eyes to see the truth within it, hearts that would hear it and follow it and love it. And so we pray now that your word would have its good effect in us, that you would change us by us, by it, make us more like your son, that you would reveal your glory to us in the pages of the gospel hope we see here. We pray that we would go out living more for the glory and honor of your name and your name alone we pray. Amen. So this morning we jump back into our series in Esther, having left off at a major cliffhanger a few weeks ago. Soon after hearing about Haman's genocidal edict, chapter 4 ends with Esther's decision to risk her life to mediate for God's people. And so we we look back to how we even got to that point in chapters 1 and 2 where we have one queen banished. And then Esther wins the favor of Ahasuerus, and he makes her queen. Chapter 3 then begins with a surprise, that though he saves the king from an assassination plot, Mordecai isn't rewarded, but rather Haman comes onto the scene, being promoted to second in command of the entire empire, and is to receive all the honor and glory and accolades that go along with that position. But Mordecai the Jew just won't do it. He will not pay homage to Haman, the Agagite. And so Haman responds to a plot to kill every Jew in the entire empire, to which the king agrees to after hearing Haman's lies and his bribe of 10,000 talents of silver. Now that seems to be quite the overreaction, doesn't it, to someone not standing up? But we saw that this is actually a more ancient enmity between God's people and their great enemy, Satan which has been going on since Genesis 3, where the serpent began looking for ways to destroy the seed of the woman so that the serpent crusher is never born. And so the hostility here in Esther isn't simply Haman against Mordecai, but an Agagite against a Benjaminite, an Amalekite against an Israelite, the seed of the serpent against the seed of the woman as the serpent is attempting to wipe out God's people so that the one who will crush his head will never be born. So in Esther chapter 4, for the first time in the story, Mordecai identifies with God's people, with the seed of the woman, after he heard everything about the edict and how it came about. So then he sends messengers to Queen Esther, who is his niece, that she and her people are under a death sentence. And he wants her to go to her husband, the king, and do something about it. The only problem with that plan is, as everyone in the empire knows, Mordecai, you can't just go to see the king. No one is allowed to show up in his presence. If you do, without being summoned, you die. Unless the king mercifully extends the golden scepter to you, allowing you an audience. But Mordecai does not relent, and he sends back enough, another message telling Esther that she can't assume that she'll be spared because they've been hiding in plain sight, and that no one knows who they are, who no one knows she's a Jew. And not only that, deliverance will come to God's people, whether you do something about it or not. And if you don't, you and your father's house will perish. But then, one of the most famous verses in Esther, right? But who knows? Who knows? Maybe all that's happened in all the years leading up to this point was for such a time as this. And so Esther bravely chooses to go uninvited to the king and tells Mordecai to have the Jews in Susa fast for three days and nights before she goes to be her people's mediator, now facing two death sentences. It's interesting to note, as we've noted a few times now, that prayer is never mentioned, especially in the uh, action that is peaking here. But there's also something else very central to Jewish identity that also is not mentioned at the end of chapter 4. Passover. Passover. The king signs Haman's genocidal edict on the 13th day of the first month which at sunset in the Jewish calendar would be been the first day of Passover. And so all of chapter 4 and chapter 5 takes place during Passover, yet without even a hint that God's people recognize what day it is, something that is so central to their identity. It'd be like saying, we got to July 4th, and and didn't take the holiday. There were no fireworks, and we forgot all about what it meant to be American. They, they go through this day and don't even give us a hint that they know what day it is. Now, we're not told God's people didn't observe it, but it would be pretty tough to eat the Passover meal and fast at the same time. And so it seems celebrating Passover, to me, would be exactly what God's people should do in a moment when a foreign power threatens their very existence. That would be something you would want to recount to your family, how God has saved you in the past. What a great display of faith it would be to gather and recount God's mighty deliverance that he worked for his people in the exodus, and then to show their confidence in God. No matter what they can see, what a great way it would be to celebrate Passover and remind themselves their confidence is not what they can see, but in the God who is unseen. But there's no mention of prayer, no mention of Passover. And yet, and yet, God remains faithful. Whatever the case may be of the spiritual vitality of God's people in Susa or anywhere else in the empire, or lack of it, In this book whether it's indifference whether it's forgetfulness maybe at times even total unfaithfulness God is accomplishing all his covenant promises even even when his people don't deserve it in fact God laid the groundwork for the glorious deliverance he'll work as we see as we continue through this book He laid the groundwork for this deliverance for his people even before they knew they needed saving. Years before one king is deposed, another is raised up. Mordecai passed over, Haman here. All these little things that we wonder what God is doing. We see he's laying the groundwork for his glorious deliverance before his people even knew they needed saving in the first place. And even in the most dire moments at the end of chapter four, as his people fast rather than celebrate Passover, which, by the way, was commanded as a fixed festival always to be observed by every Jewish generation until the end of time, even when his people don't acknowledge God's divine power and promises, God still intends to fulfill every single one of his purposes. And that, brothers and sisters, is the gospel hope in the pages of Esther. If you want to know why we're going through Esther, it's this. Our hope isn't that God's people finally get it together and compel God to deliver them and the rest of his people from certain death. Our hope is God's commitment to save his people. Even when everything we do and everything we don't do demands our judgment. God doesn't save his people because of the quality of their faith or the greatness of their faithfulness. God saves because of the greatness of his faithfulness. That's the glory that we see in the pages of Esther, that God saves because he's steadfastly committed to keeping his promises in spite of what his people deserve, even and especially when his people are even at their very worst. And how does God do that, brothers and sisters? How does God keep this steadfast commitment? Well, he doesn't do it by excusing sin, does he? God never excuses sin. God saves by his son, Jesus, who mediated our deliverance through his righteous life and sacrificial death, which atoned for his people's unrighteousness, which atoned for his people being at their very worst. And because Jesus is the perfect substitution, sacrifice for our people's sins, our, we're not saved by the quality of our faith, but by the, the quality of our Savior, who is Jesus. That's who saves. Esther points us to Christ because Jesus didn't just risk his life to plead for his people's deliverance. Jesus laid down his life for his people so that all those with faith in him would never die but have eternal life in him. That's the gospel hope we see through the first four chapters of Esther. And the hidden hand of God's providence in Esther gives us great hope. That even when you and I can't see what God is doing, and even when we don't deserve God's grace and mercy, God will not fail. God will not fail. God will not fail to accomplish the salvation of His people. But this comes. This brings us to a tension in living the Christian faith in everyday life. We have this doctrine of divine providence and grace and salvation, but that's never an excuse for inaction. That's never an excuse to keep on sinning. It's never an excuse to say what we do does not matter. God's sovereign, so we can just do whatever. We don't see that in the Scriptures either. And we see this in the two portraits in chapter 5 that though God is sovereign, we are responsible. And we see it first in the first portrait, which is Esther's bravery. Esther's bravery. Now, Esther faces outcomes beyond her control. She is in a grand story of the hidden hand of God's providence working all around her. Who knows? Well, we know because we know the end of the story, but in the middle of it, Esther does not know. She's facing outcomes beyond her control. She said, if I perish, I perish. But she isn't resigned. She, that, that doesn't lead her to believe her actions don't matter. Esther is never stoic or resigned. In fact, she chooses to act wisely and shrewdly. And we see this after fasting three days and three nights, we're told she dresses in her royal robes. The phrase there is is literally, she puts on her royalty. and She hasn't had anything to eat or drink for three days, but she's not going to the king looking ragged. She aims to impress him and everyone else as she walks to the throne room with her royalty. She is going to come in all the glory of the queen of the empire. But as she begins her walk to the throne room, we must remember she doesn't know what we already do. She doesn't know what we are. She doesn't know if she is the way deliverance for God's people will come. She doesn't know how Ahasuerus will respond when he sees her. She hasn't seen him in now 33 days. She isn't sure his golden scepter will be extended to her. Yet, she still does all she can do to secure his favor. She's going to put herself in the most favorable position as she can. If she perishes, she perishes. But she doesn't go and resign. She's going to work hard to secure his favor. And she goes with brave conviction to do everything she can to gain his favor. And brothers and sisters, we too must step out in brave conviction as we live out the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Sometimes more poignant times to step out will will come to you and you're facing that choice. Will you step out in wise, brave shrewdness in faith. Now, we're not promised everything we will or everything will work out how we'd like them to work out. We too, as we're putting one foot in front of the other in stepping out in conviction of the faith once for all delivered to the saint, we're not sure we're going to get what we want to see. But being united to Christ by faith Though we might have outcomes beyond our control, we have promises we can be sure of. Listen to Romans 8. This is just one, by the way. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, think about this for Esther for a moment. A Ahasuerus could be against us, her. The guy holding the axe next to his throne, waiting to kill her, if he doesn't extend the golden scepter, definitely going to be against her. Haman's against her. And then everyone else in the empire on the day then the genocide is supposed to take place is going to be against her. You see how many people are against. And maybe you feel the same. There are lots of people. There are lots of people against God's people in this world, even today. But that's—he's not saying we won't face difficulty or you don't actually have things against you. Who can be against us? Well, ultimately, no matter how many people are really against you, ultimately no one is. Because he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, even through the great difficulties that might be facing you, that are against you? And then he says this, for I am sure that neither death nor life, death's a pretty big thing to be against you, isn't it? Death's an enemy, it's still an enemy. It's still against us. It's still coming. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, though, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, uh, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can ultimately be against you. We will, will though None of those things will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what it's not saying is when you're a Christian, man, life's smooth sailing, and you'll never have anything against you. That's not what Romans 8 is saying. It means in spite of everything that can be against you, none of them actually will accomplish what they hope to because they cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So then nothing's against you. And that's the hope of the Christian life, that in spite of everything that can be against us, ultimately nothing is. Because in Jesus, you cannot be separated from the love of God. And so Esther bravely steps out at great personal risk without knowing what the outcome will be. And yet bravery doesn't equal brazenness or carelessness. Now Esther has a plan she's wisely considered for three days and now has put into action. She's going to step out in brave faith. And she enters the king's court and then just stands there. One author writes this, Wisely, she does not barge in. She stands at the very edge of the court, doing just enough to get the king into the king's line of sight, and then waits for him to notice her. And taking this approach, Esther shows a wise balance between bold faith and thoughtful planning. If she perishes, she perishes. But she's going to walk in with the air of all the glory of the queen of the empire, and then stand there, radiant. And we know from the artifacts what Esther sees at this moment when she enters the throne room. There are pictures of uh, this particular time uh, in the kingdom where the king is on his throne with a a soldier standing guard next to him with the most ginormous axe. That's what Esther sees. (laughs) Is that axe going to fall on me? But just as she did in chapter 2, Esther has won the favor of Ahasuerus. So rather than the axe falling, the golden scepter is extended. And again, we see some more seeds of the gospel here, don't we? After three days under the shadow of death, Esther receives life rather than death. And that points to Jesus, doesn't it? Who wasn't just under the shadow of death or the threat of death for three days. He actually died and was held by the power of death in the grave for three days. But because Jesus wasn't guilty of the sin he died for, but bore his people's sin upon the cross, the grave couldn't hold him. It was not his sin, so the grave had no power over him. So God raised him up on the third day to resurrection life. And that's the gospel hope that we're pointed to here. That apart from being united to Jesus by faith, We're guilty before God. And we live our lives under the shadow of eternal death that sinners' sin justly deserves and that we should receive judgment rather than life. But Jesus died so that guilty sinners would, in fact, receive life rather than judgment, that they would be extended mercy rather than condemnation. And for all those who trust in Jesus we're not only saved, but we're brought back into fellowship with God. Unlike Esther, then, we can go without fear before the throne of our gracious Heavenly Father, not wondering if He'll be happy to see us, but with confidence, knowing that we will receive grace and mercy in times of need and we don't have to fear brothers and sisters because our confidence isn't in what we've done or haven't done our confidence isn't oh, i gotta do my best and if i perish i perish but no our confidence is jesus christ who did it who did it all once and for all and so we can enter boldly with confidence into the throne room of grace and know we receive mercy in times of need And so let's turn back to our text and see what Esther does now that she has again, for the second time in our book, won the king's favor. Under the threat of death, she receives life, and so she touches the tip of the scepter, and when she does, the king asks her in verse 3, What is it, Queen Esther? What's your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And then she tells him, and everything goes back to normal, and the book is over. Well, that's what you would think would happen, right? I mean, the king's wondering. He's like, man, she, she knows, everyone knows. You can't just walk in here. You could very easily have that ax headed towards her rather than the golden scepter. So he's got this curiosity, what is it? Well, why would she make such a bold move? And then he adds a blank check to his curiosity. I'll, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. Not literally, it's just a phrase meaning, whatever you want, I'll do. You, you, you've won my favor. I'm well pleased with you. Anything you want. After, I mean, remember just a few minutes, uh, a few moments before she was making a walk, not knowing if she would come out alive. But now God has turned the king's heart towards her like a stream of water. And so not only does she live, but she's assured that he will grant her request. And so it's so surprising she doesn't ask the king for a way out of the genocidal edict. Instead, she invites him to a feast. (laughs) But if we consider the story of Esther, isn't this another display of her wisdom? I mean, what did the, or how did this book begin? With a 180-day feast. And then what started the next day? A seven-day feast. This is a king who likes to feast, right? She's not, she's not scared. I think she's playing to, to, the, to, to, to the desires of the king. She's making decisions based on what she knows about him. He likes to feast. He says he's going to give me, but we've already seen how fickle this king can be. So she's going to wisely act in such a way she can gain more favor to ensure her request will be granted. And so then we're seeing that it's even, but we might see the wisdom in that. Like, okay, the king likes to feast. Let's throw him a feast and then ask. But what about Esther's decision to invite Haman along? You're like, wait a minute. Why are we bringing that snake with us? It's a bold move, right? But later we'll see why Esther wisely does this. She wants to unmask Haman while he's in the room. But humanly speaking, at this moment, it's quite the dangerous move, isn't it? And it's a move that puts the favorable outcome that the king just said he'd give her in peril. And so it's even more surprising that when the king and Haman have feasted, And then the wine course comes, and they've had their fill of that. Hazarus asks again in verse 6, Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. So now she's got the enemy in the room. They're both uh, filled with wine. He's already now said again that he's going to give her whatever she wants. And so it's even more shocking that Esther again delays She invites them both back for a feast the next day. You wonder, right? I mean, it's all right there. Everything went right again. Inviting Haman didn't backfire. God's people in Susa had been fasting for three days for this moment. And you decide to throw another feast How many times, Esther, do you think the door is going to open to you before it never does again? But another delay is Esther's wisdom on display. I like how one commentator puts it. He says this, Like a hunter skillfully luring her prey into a trap, Esther almost tells all, but not quite. You see that there? My wish and my request is... The king leans forward expectantly. Come to my party again tomorrow and bring Haman along too, and I'll tell you everything. It was a dangerous game to be sure, but there's no way Ahasuerus can refuse now, can he? He's just got to know. The suspense must have been killing him. Not only that, he gets to have another feast (laughs) and another wine course. And so in this first portrait of wise bravery, Esther is really modeling Jesus' teaching to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. She's humbled herself through fasting for three days. She's asked for the people of God to be on her side in Susa. And she's even honored her authority, Ahasuerus, though it's worldly, and it dramatically altered her life in chapters one and two. And yet Esther still believes The deliverance for God's people will come from somewhere, perhaps through one just like her in such a time as this. But either way, what does Esther's bravery portray here? Esther isn't passive. She doesn't choose passivity. She's not resigned. She isn't stoic. She actively plans and wisely executes her moves to unravel the evil edict and have the man responsible present when it does. She's wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove, and she steps out in bold conviction with her faith. But as chapter 5 turns to our second portrait, we see just how dangerous things are. Esther's second delay, as wise as it is, has opened the door for everything to unravel before she makes her request to the king. Haman is elated when he leaves, probably a little bit high on wine, but he's also high on life. He's been invited back for a second feast, and he's the only one invited to dine with the king and the queen. But on his way home, he passes Mordecai, who again doesn't pay him homage and stays seated at the gate. And just as filled with gladness and joy he was a few moments before, now he is filled with wrath. Yet he holds it together for the moment. But when he arrives home, he calls his wife and his friends over, and then we see the second portrait of chapter 5 painted, Haman's Pride. Haman's Pride. Well, what does he tell his friends when his wife and friends gather around him? Well, he tells them how great he is. Here is what is known as the me monster coming out in full force. Hey, come on over. Are you going to feed us dinner? No. We're going to watch a movie? No. What are we doing? I'm going to tell you how awesome I am. And so he begins to boast in his riches, and there's a lot of them. He begins to boast in his fertility and his many sons. And he begins to boast. And all the things that he has done to which the king recognizes how great he is and has honored him above all. And worldly, humanly speaking, it is all very impressive. Because outside of the king, he's achieved more than any other human in the entire empire. And in fact, maybe even more than the king. The king's only the king just because he was the former king's son. (laughs) He didn't earn it. Haman, he's achieved more than any other human in the entire empire, perhaps even more than the king. But you can see how flimsy it is to put your hope and your identity and your joy and your gladness in the things you can do and the things you can have. Because as much as it all means to him, and he wants to tell everyone about it, he then says, but it means nothing to me. None of that Matters because one man, Mordecai, won't stand up. I mean, how flimsy is the uh, the accomplishments that we can do for our self-worth and our identity when one person in half a second can tear everything you've worked for down? How quickly Haman went from joyful and glad in heart to filled with wrath and feeling empty-handed in spite of all his riches and fames and the number of his sons. Why, Why do you think that is? Why are accomplishments and riches and fame so flimsy to put our hope in? Well, when your hope is wealth or fame, there's always a little bit more that you don't have. There's always maybe someone else that, Tops the list of world's most wealthiest person. Or maybe you heard the news this past week that Tetris was beat for the first time in 34 years by a 13-year-old, who then freaked out on a live stream. It was I, I was not watching it live stream. Don't don't think I'm like watching Tetris live streams at night. All right? I saw it later, but he freaked out and he should. 13-year-old. Did you know? No one's ever beat trust, that, <coughs> Tetris before. You actually don't beat Tetris. Tetris just breaks. It just stops. (laughs) It's like the bricks just stop. They're like, we're done. We can't beat you. But no one's ever done it. But you know what happened just a few days later? Someone else beat it. Now he's not the only person in the world to beat Tetris. Do you see how fast worldwide accomplishments, you're like the only one? No, you're not. And if your hope's in that, well, now you got to You're always working towards something else. There's always someone else who maybe is a little better, always someone more, or someone else who has a little bit more than you. When your hope is wealth or fame, you'll never have enough to find the satisfaction and rest you long for. And not only that, living for it will not only never give you what you want, it will ultimately be your destruction. For pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So what we actually see is not just a miscalculation or some bad choices by by Haman. In the midst of Haman's prideful boasts, we see the seeds of his destruction planted. So his wife and friends tell him to stop whining and do something about it. Go build some gallows 75 feet high, and in the morning tell the king to hang Mordecai on it, That'll make you happy. And then go to the feast, drink more wine, and be more happy. Well, Haman thinks that's a pretty good idea. And you, you wouldn't, we're not surprised by that. Because as absurd a height of 75 feet is, it just displays the fragility of pride. And remember, gallows probably in that empire didn't mean a rope he would hang from it. He would be impaled on it. They would impale him 75 feet high in the air, the reason being so that they could display to everyone what it means if you get on Haman's bad side. And all this just shows the fragility of pride. Because the only way forward for pride is to respond with an even bigger blow to the one who injured it. But you see how fragile that is? What happens the next day when someone else won't honor you? <laughs> what happens the next day when someone else gets richer than you? What happens when the king doesn't like you as much as he might like someone else? What, what happens, what? Responding with even bigger blows to the one who injured your pride never solves anything. It just leaves you open for more injury. But as chapter 5 closes, what do we see? We actually see the way of pride winning. We don't see the hand of God at work. We actually see the way of bold conviction maybe not working out as we thought it would. Because all we can see is Esther's delay opens the door for Haman to now build a giant gallow for her uncle. So now he's going to die sooner rather than later like he would have in the edict. And not only that, the genocidal edict is still in effect. Do you see what Esther's delays have done? Have you ever felt like things are happening that you don't understand? But then right when you begin to see a resolution materializing, things get worse than you expected? I mean, have you been in a place where things are so out of control, you don't see how God is going to work this one out? And, brothers and sisters, the way forward in moments like these is the way of brave humility. It can't be the fragile pride Haman displays, because we see how quickly the most solid things in life meant nothing to him when one person doesn't act the way he wants. But that's not the only reason pride isn't the way forward. 1 Peter 5 says this God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that's woven into the uh, thread of the universe, so much so that it's true, even when you can't see it. Even when you can't see how God is going to give grace to the humble, even when all you see is the proud winning and gaining more and more and more, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the Humble, even when you can't be certain of the outcome. And we know that's true, don't we? Because it's the way of Jesus, whose life was a demonstration that to go down in humility is actually the way up to exaltation. Going down in humility is the way up to exaltation. And that's what Philippians 2 reveals, that though Jesus was God, he humbled himself to become a servant of his people's salvation, By dying the most humiliating death on a cross. But God the Father raised him up far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and gave him the name and title that is above every name for all eternity. In the moment, on Good Friday, it seemed like God was with the proud and opposed the humble. Humility is the way to exaltation and never the other way around. And so the path of humility followed by exaltation is the way of the Christian life. To be exalted, we must be humbled. And those who are humbled will be exalted. And so what do we see in these two portraits as chapter 5 closes? Well, friends, friends, if your hope is in anything but Jesus Christ, those things will never give you the life and joy you seek. And more than that, those things you hope in actually contain the seeds of your destruction. They're the proof that God will oppose your pride. That's the bad news. But the good news is that in Jesus Christ, You may have life and joy so believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and not only will you be saved but you will receive the life and joy you've always longed for both now and forever and brothers and sisters let's walk the path that our Savior walked before us bravely humbly fueled by the faith in his promises we're not sure of the outcomes on this side of eternity We don't know what stepping out in bold conviction might bring to us in 2024, but since by faith our life is hidden with Christ in God, we can be sure of one thing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And not only that, God will use everything in our lives, even our humility, even our humbling Even those times when the proud seem to be winning, God uses everything in our lives to get great glory for himself no matter what. And so because God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine, let us live boldly in wise faith in 2024 for the glory of his name and all we say and do. Let's pray. Father, throughout the scriptures we see two ways to live, prideful self-reliance and humble dependence upon Christ. And we pray that your grace would make us the people who live like it is to live as Christ and to die as gain that we would pick up our cross and follow Jesus in spite of the cross or in spite of the cost and maybe even in spite of knowing what the outcome may be for us. But then remembering that nothing is ultimately against us, not even death, for death is just now our servant to bring us into your presence forever. And so we pray more for conviction, humility, and a deep faith in your promises that you are the God who is always at work and nothing can separate us from you in Jesus Christ. And as we come to this table, may the bread and the cup remind us that we have that confidence, not because of anything we've done, but because of who our Savior is and what he has done for us on the cross and in the grave and on the third day rising to resurrection life. And We pray that you would deepen our faith and feed us on Christ this morning, we pray. Amen.